So would you check and make sure you, your cell phone is off, please? And um, let's, as we do, begin in silence. Take a deep breath, or three. Brooke Summers-Perry, who uh, has a new app, which I'm going to tell you about when it goes online, and hopefully get her to come and talk to us some about the Enneagram prior to Suzanne Stabile, so she take three deep breaths. So let's do that. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking. May grace be in our eyes and in our seeing. May grace be in our ears and in our hearing. May grace be in our mouths and in our speaking. May grace be in our hearts and at our, in our understanding. And may grace be at our ends and at our departing. And um, I'm going to skip this because we're going to talk a lot about that. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. Um, first of all, I want to thank those of you who were prompt in your response to um, putting together a coalition, a team, to do the Suzanne Stabile event. We have enough people, thank you, and we're going to be uh, starting the publicity on that probably in two weeks. It's quiet around here right now. A lot of people are on vacation and that sort of thing. But as you know, Suzanne Stubel is going to be here the last Saturday in September. And uh, then uh, she'll be here. She'll be here all that Saturday. And then she'll be here on Sunday morning preaching here, preaching, and then the next day she's staying for staff development. And I, I want to thank you, people, for doing, doing that. So today, I would like to introduce to you Dr. Holly Hudley. What did you say huh? some time ago? I don't, you might have said this to me privately, you said, you know, when, when you finish this thing and we sit up here together, we're going to be a paradox. I did say that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good one. <laughs> I like that. I like that line. Yeah. yeah. So how does it feel? I mean. Are you charging more now? <laughs> yes, I am. No. You'll how does it feel? feel? Uh, like a relief. I mean, like giving birth a little bit, yeah. to be honest, yeah. Only it was five years of pregnancy, not <laughs> nine months. So uh, it, it feels, I feel happy, I feel excited, I feel terrified, I feel like, yeah, I feel proud. It's all of the things. Uh, I've shared this with people in here, but I want to I want to say it again publicly. There were some of us who were privileged to attend your doctoral defense. Yeah. And um, Holly, it was just brilliant. It was Thank just you. wonderful. Yeah. And it, after it was there over the Holly's committee, and your chairman, what's his name? Matt Siegel. He brilliant. He's brilliant. He's yeah. just brilliant. Yeah. Anyway, the, the, he announced that Holly's 
doctoral dissertation committee would go away. Uh, this is all on Zoom, so they went away for a while. And then um, he came back and he said, well, how, how, or should I say Dr. Hudley? And everybody just broke out into yeah. tears and applause and everything. But it was brilliant. I, I wish you would do it here. A defense? <laughs> well, some crazy. version of it. I think it's so interesting that it's called a defense. You know, I mean, it's like my favorite part of the process was the conversation that got to happen. You do this defense, a presentation where you have slides and you convince everybody of your research and why it's important. And then you have a conversation about it where people ask questions. Anyone who's done this knows this. And, um, and I just think defense is the entirely wrong word for it. What would you call it? A, a presentation even is better? A conversation? A dialogue? Yeah. An initiation maybe? But defense is like you're immediately like, I gotta defend myself. I gotta prove to you why, why I'm worthy. <clears throat> Were you nervous? Um, I did this kind of grounding exercise right before it and I was not nervous. I was excited. I was nervous about a day before, but I, I felt really good. Well, um, and, and these people will see some of that. Uh, you're, you're, you're an artist and you've been doing artwork every day since getting this done, a lot of days. But um, the slides that you presented at your dissertation were works of art and they were some of them some yeah of them they were, were they were beautiful yeah. I, will, I will tell you a story that when I did my doctoral dissertation mm -hmm. uh, the night before uh, I developed a tick in my right eye I was so anxious yeah. about it and uh, I didn't know what to expect and once you're in the club you sort of get it but you just did a kind of performance it's a, yeah. it's an, it's an yeah. initiation yeah. they're all going she's gonna get in anyway yeah you know? we wouldn't let her get this far if she weren't gonna you know I mean, right. we hope but so there's that fear that they're gonna come back and go sorry at the time I <laughs> then when I went actually to get my are you gonna go get a hood and all that stuff I don't think that because I'm a summer completer I don't think that the ceremony happens until next spring are you going uh, we'll see yeah I'm so kind of like not, this is what, we're going to talk a little bit about this. I'm not a super big, um, like, ritual person in that way. But I think that's a way of also minimizing the accomplishment, that it's like, you know, oh, I don't need this celebration. But When yeah. I went to get my doctoral dissertation, Douglas, uh -huh. my son, had so far that year perfect attendance in school, and he didn't <laughs> want to miss. He got to go to Astroworld. No, he. I wanted him to go see me walk across the stage, uh -huh. and he didn't want to miss school. Yeah, because you get to go to Astro World if you have perfect attendance in HISD. I didn't remember that part. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he kept saying, "I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I want to stay and go to school." And so I used this line on him. But Doug, I'm going to become a doctor, and he said, "Yeah, but not the kind that helps people." <laughs> That happened. Thanks, son. <laughs> mm -hmm. So um, you're now going for another certification as a spiritual yeah, director. Yeah, and you know, this also is, it's interesting, like, 
I, I really have to honestly ask myself is when does that need to stop? Never. Because I, I love learning. I'm a lifelong learner. I think many in this room are that in some way or another we pursue knowing. We pursue trying to know something. And I, but at some point it's like, all right, really, how many more certifications and whatever? You know, I mean, at some point you just have to go put your nose to the ground and get some things done. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But you're going to do it. But I'm doing it. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can continue to be our God today. <laughs> so our, um, Holly and I are sitting here together because we have been in conversation every day this week except Friday. Yeah. Um, like old times. Like old times. And we've been talking about this. And we call today's time Sea of Faith. So I want to give a background mm -hmm. for this. Um, sea of Faith is a book written by Don Cupid. Don Cupid I met probably in 2020. Um, and he was a member of the Jesus Seminar, which now I don't think exists. No exist. way you met him in 2020. Nobody met anybody in 2020. Oh, I, no, I'm sorry. It must have been 2000 is what I meant. Okay. I meant 2000. Well, I'm 98. That's so. right. That's right. We figured that out the other day. Uh, I've, I've aged some more. Yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I met Don Cuban. And I'm about, 27. Okay. I keep going down. You keep going down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I met him about 25 years ago. Okay. Let me put it that yeah. way. Um, he uh, was a priest in the Church of England member of the Jesus Seminar, and I read not this book that's on the screen, but a series of papers that he wrote in preparation to for one of the Jesus Seminar meetings. He's brilliant, mm. I think. Mm -hmm. Now, you've seen him on the YouTube. Mm -hmm. I haven't read the book, but I've, he has this series of six YouTube videos, um, you know, which are, you know, they're... Okay. They're okay. They're, they're, they're 25 years old. You can listen old. to them like a podcast. You, can't, you don't have to watch the visuals. The visuals are more like slides, so I would walk my dogs and listen to them. And, um, and they're a good, I think, encapsulation of what the book is. Um, they're interesting. They're informative. They're historical. They're uh, putting it all in context, kind of. Why do we do this thing called spirituality, religion? Why do we do this? So, so here's the metaphor that uh, Don Cupid got from a poem by Matthew Arnold. And the poem is that the sea comes into the shore and in the process changes the shore. And then the sea goes out and when the sea comes back, not only is it a different shore, but it's a different sea. Make sense? You get the metaphor? So what Don Cupid is saying is that faith is like that. There's sea of faith that comes up against us, the shore. That's what I take it to be. And um, the sea goes out and then comes back and it's a different sea every time we encounter it and we're different every time we encounter the sea. Does that metaphor make sense to you? Is that what we're saying? Yeah. So what Don Cupid's book is, is a historical look at the sea of the Christian faith as it is developed in the world in Western thought, Germany, the Netherlands, England, Italy, 
uh, not so much the United States, uh, over the long period of time, talking about the big names in every intellectual discipline you can imagine and how they've impacted the, the church. And um, I started reading this book because of it being referred to in another book that I was reading, and uh, I'd never read it. And um, the, the author implied, he didn't say this, of the book that I read, that Don Cubitt is to the left of the author that I was currently reading, and well, that appealed to me. Uh, you know, I wanted to know what this guy was thinking, although I had met him and heard him and had respect for him. He's a tall guy, big guy, and um, there are Sea of Faith communities that have come up um, in the trail of this book, um, people who have um, kind of given up on organized religion, but they still want to have a faith community. So they have uh, constituted these Sea of Faith communities. And I cannot find one in the United States. Maybe Ordinary Life is one, but we don't have this as, as a book. And so um, we wanted, I wanted us to, I wanted you to read the book, which you're doing by listening to the podcast, and then for us to talk about it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting just even as you say a couple of things, and um, we've had these conversations all week. And by the way, today we didn't write a script. <laughs> and we both committed to that, which is highly unusual for both of us. <laughs> so, um, but we have some notes and maybe some things we'll refer to. But we, one is, he may be to the left of whoever you are reading in a context. He's not, what, he's not, but in another context outside of, let's say, the, the Christian tradition or the Abrahamic tradition, he's not radical. But within the tradition, he's, he might be conceived of as radical, right? So we hold that with parenthetical degrees of radicalness. And you know, the other thing that kind of is always interesting to me that I, I like cringe when people use words like people of the faith or believers. <laughs> you, you too. <laughs> And it's because I think we're all people of faith. You know, to get up in the morning requires a little degree of faith. Like, is the floor still there? You know, is everything still here? You know, so to, to just get up and do life requires some amount of faith, some amount of trust that there's a purpose for us getting up. And so I don't love the idea that like faith only occupies this one thing called religion. Because we have this binary that people say believers and non-believers, people of faith, people without faith. And then we've got a separation, you know? I think one of the great thing, points that uh, Cupid makes implied and explicit at the end of the book is that when you use words like that, you have to know what they mean, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so that, I wanted to jump on this phrase, love letters to modern mystics, mm -hmm. because I think in his own way, Cupid is a mystic. Mm -hmm. uh, and what impresses me about the mystics 
and the people that he writes about is that they all are within a faith tradition. They've transcended that tradition. They may have been critical of that tradition. They may have had another way to think about that tradition. But like Jim Finley is um, Buddhist Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I certainly think that he has transcended that tradition, but he teaches from within that mm -hmm. tradition. Mm -hmm. And I would say that about Shelby Spong or any of, any of the people that's mentioned in Dan Cubitt's book. Yeah. And so... Um, I think love is what matters. Mm -hmm. I think mysticism is being able to get higher and higher on the developmental levels that we have talked about. Um, there's nothing spooky or weird about being a mystic. Mm -hmm. And I found this graphic mm -hmm. <laughs> in the um, text of Jan Phillips' emails. You all remember Jan Phillips? when she was here, a mm -hmm. uh, Roman Catholic nun who got kicked out of being a nun because she was gay. And this image is on, gay. huh? I think she still is gay. She still is gay. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean to imply that she wasn't. So. <laughs> because she was gay. Was just so, all right, she still is gay. <laughs> uh, and there we, and, uh, that's another image of faith community, which we yeah. could talk about. Anyway, this image is on her uh, email that she sent out and, um, I asked her if I could use it, and she said yes, and she didn't know where it came from. Mm -hmm. So I love mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. hugging the cosmos. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things we were toying with: is this idea of going, moving from from chaos to cosmos, and this, you know, cosmos is another is a Greek word for 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 home, for for like the world home, right? And we, and, and the cosmos actually demands us to embrace both chaos and order. There's a, a word that uh, a guy that was a teacher, I couldn't remember his name until I texted you. I remembered his name is Brock, and now I can't remember his last name. But he gave a kind of talk at, at one point in my work as, with my PhD, and his word that he uses is chaotic. And this embracing of chaos and order is, is an embrace of what we would call reality, right? We, I, I think this is another thing that, that, uh, that I would, you, you use the word love, and I think absolutely love is probably the highest pursuit of, of, of the human. And I, I don't know whether my dog loves me, I'd like to think she does, but, um, but I really don't know. I know she want, needs me to feed her, but I don't know if my dog loves me. But I do know that I feel love for her. I feel love for you, know, you. I feel love for my kids. So love is like, I think, our, our evolution. But I'm not convinced, and this is back to the word chaotic, that God is just love, whatever this thing that we call God. Because if we are to embrace God, that means we are to embrace the all of it right? The chaos and the order, the creativity and the destruction. And that's a really hard thing, I think, for people who come up in the sort of um, Western Christian tradition to embrace, is that it's not just love, but it's the both-and-ness 
the chaos and the order, the love and the destruction, the love and the hate that we must come to kind of recognize in ourselves and in this journey. Well, one of the people yeah. that non cubit spends a lot of time talking about is Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. And Carl Jung has this definition of God as that which willfully cuts across yeah. my life in disrupting ways. All things. All things. Yeah. And, and yet at the same time, Jung would say, uh, when asked if he believed in God, he would say, no, I know God. Right. And that's, that to me is what I mean when I use the word mystic. Right. It's not somebody who has a doctrine that matters, mm -hmm. but an experience that provides them a context out of which to live their life that provides meaning. Well, the, and the thing is, is that if, if we are only resting in this need to know God as love, when something terrible happens, we lose faith. You know, we, we don't know how to reconcile with that if we cannot see that this too belongs. So um, the, one of our clergy here, Brandy Horton, mm -hmm. who's preaching today, preached probably the best Good Friday service sermon I've ever heard in all my life mm. this past Good Friday. Um, and uh, the title of the sermon is, is or no, the title of the sermon is With. Mm. And uh, she began by saying that she didn't believe in Good Friday sermons. And I think and now I'm going to give one. <laughs> and, 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 well, she, that was her job. Yeah. That was what yeah. she was required to do. And, and uh, I know that when I was teaching in seminary and people would raise a question about not feeling like doing their work, yeah. you've got to do it whether you feel like it or not because it's what your job. It's what you're paid to do. Mm -hmm. and, and, but the title of her sermon was that um, God is with, mm -hmm. no matter what, yeah. no matter how it seems. And I think that one of the reasons that I wanted to talk a few weeks ago about this evolving understanding of God as not being out there, mm -hmm. um, and, and I may modify my statement at some point, but if there's one thing I would like to be remembered about my teaching here, in addition to having a daily spiritual practice, and using your turn signal, <laughs> it would be that God is not out there. Yeah. God is here and here. Yeah. I think that's a very Jesus teaching. Yes. And and um, so that's a that's the tradition I want to teach from. But the minute you have this postulation of a God out there as a benevolent creature, mm -hmm. then when your child dies of leukemia. Yeah. You wonder, well, where was this God? And when someone says to you it was all part of the plan, right? Yeah. Then, then what it does is it erases your grief and mm -hmm. your anger and your right to just like feel into this very human experience of loss and grief and anger and, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I, sometimes I think we want this like palliative God. And uh, two funny things, actually, so in this, the, in the, by the palliative God, I mean the one who comes in and smooths over, right? And, and if we say, well, God just is, and we can, what do we mean by God is a whole other thing, but that's the best word we have for mystery, other than maybe mystery itself, <laughs> is if, if we can embrace this idea that God just is, then we're less at odds with what is, 
You know, we're in, and I think what you, one of the questions you had this week was, um, and we're kind of doing this for ourselves. We were going to ask each other questions. Now I'm asking myself the question you were going to ask me, um, which is, why are we doing this? And I think one of it is to, to soften the edges, to not be so rigid about who we are, what we believe, and who, what we need to hold on to in the world, and to kind of blur those lines a little bit and say there, there's much more than just this hard edge. A woman that I met recently, she was like a firecracker. She said, I'm part woman, part man, and part hound dog. I was like, I want to say that when I'm in my 70s. <laughs> and um, she gave me this image of her uh, dove hunting with her brother when she was little. But she said this phrase. She said, you can either hold on to life like a rope or like a baby bird in your palm. And one clings and won't let go. And the other nurtures and creates a soft space and maybe even allows the baby bird to fly away eventually. And I, I, that image has just really stuck with me. We can cling for dear life, or we can soften. And so my answer to, to why are we doing this is a little bit about softening the edges and, and creating a, more questions than answers. And so one of my favorite yeah. Zen teaching stories is about the Zen master who started teaching and attracted a huge following. And there was a, another Zen master in the village who was jealous of him. Uh -huh. And so he was going to upset the teaching and get the students to come to him instead of this person. So what he did was got a baby bird and put it in his hand mm -hmm. and took it to the Zen master. And he said, um, tell me, Zen master, if you're so smart, is the bird in my head dead or alive? And if the Zen master had said uh, it's alive, he was going to close his hand and kill the bird. Show him dead. If the Zen master said he's dead, he's going to owe me his head and let the bird fly away. Mm -hmm. So he had him either way. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So he had with the Zen master and said, Tell me if you're so smart, is the bird dead or alive? And the Zen master said, That, my friend, is entirely up yep, to, to you. you. Yeah. And I think that the reason that we're doing this is to prepare for a series that I said I wanted to do coming mm -hmm. up, which is to do an in depth dive, a, another. <laughs> <laughs> I know, you forgot. You dived in, yeah. into the Lord's Prayer. Mm -hmm. And um, so I've started working and reading about that, and I wanted to do that because I think the sea of faith changes how we understand ourselves as the shore. That's mm -hmm. constantly changing. Mm -hmm. And also how we understand what comes at us, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, yeah. whether that comes at us from tradition or scripture or reason or experience, mm -hmm. uh, it's changing all the time. That's right. Yeah. Well, before we get in that path, I'll, I'll just mention this book that I've been reading, and it, it, you can see it's called Integral Psychology. And I want to say it's less about psychology than it is, although it is informed by psychology. It is really about philosophy and spirituality. And his premise here is about how Eastern traditions tend to focus on the mind, and Western traditions tend to focus on the spirit, but we're missing this integration uh, with the body. 
And the, the lack of attention to the body disallows this full coming together within the human being, right? And, um, and, and, and he's got, and what he says is the, the fundamental um, rupture of our time is the fragmentation of the self. And how do we sort of reassemble the self? I mean, honestly, the, the second we're born, we're fragmented because we come out of oneness and suddenly we're our own being. <laughs> but, it, but, but, but how do we actually reassemble the self in such a way that we're living into wholeness? And so a couple of words that came up for us this week were addressing this feeling of exile, this feeling of aloneness, feelings of uncertainty, and questions about belonging. And we also wanted to address this perception about like current state of affairs of, let's say, religion, spirituality, morality, and change. Our religions, I would say all, all of them that I know of, don't fit into modernity in some ways. So how do we sort of like address the, the traditions of religion to help them adapt to modernity? How do we adapt modernity to the wisdom of religions? So again, this integration. Um, we're not in a new place as human beings. We've been in a broken place before. I just saw Oppenheimer. Anyone seen that? Yeah, it, it, and it leaves you with this question. He was neither vilified nor celebrated in that movie. So the audience is less, left with more questions and discernment about how, how do we feel about this than we are given answers about how to feel about this. So we've been in places of brokenness before. It's not new. And it will never go away. The question is really, can we integrate the brokenness with the pursuit of wholeness? And there, one of the things for me is, why, why am I even interested in this kind of thing called spiritual direction or spiritual formation? And I guess it's because human beings have been trying to make sense of it for as long as we've been human beings, it seems. Our, our pictorial languages, we're trying to make sense of what's you know, the out there and the in here. But the other part of it for me is less about how do we make sense of the mystery and more about how do we make sense of being ourselves? How do we make sense of being human? And that's why I'm interested in this. There's this beautiful quote. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Let's, we can get to that later. Do you want to talk about this? The, the, your, your four slides? Yeah. The quadrat quadrilateral? Yeah. What did you, yeah, tell, me, tell us about it. Um, I think the phrase is coined, Dr. Vangson is here and could correct me, Schubert Ogden? Is that right? Um, theologian uh, at um, Southern Methodist, at Perkins Southern mm -hmm. Methodist, came up with this thing called the quadrilateral as making up the content of um, uh, it's kind of like a yardstick or a ruler or things to consider things that are important. Um, tradition, scripture, reason, and experience. Mm -hmm. And I put them in this order because when... Now we're talking about in the Christian tradition, right? Although um, I have some acquaintance with some other religions, this is 
speaking to the Christian religion. Up until the 14th, 15th century, this is the order in which the quadrilateral was experienced. Tradition nobody could read. No, few people could read. So the tradition was handed on by people in power, clerics in power, to uh, you lay people who don't know anything. That's the way that it was thought. Uh, but we're taught through stories and the stained glass and windows. You know that in the churches in Europe, they didn't have pews for people to sit in. So when you went to church, you stood for the entire service for the mass. And um, so the stained glass windows were ways to convey the biblical stories and pictures and images to people. So tradition came first. Tradition was handed on by the by the church to the people backed up by things that were in the, in the bible and then came experience and then when martin luther came on the scene uh, that changed and scripture got put first because everybody is a enable according to luther theology and the calvinism that followed and other things of the anabaptists and other free ones we have the capacity to interpret the Bible for ourselves. I remember that growing up as a Baptist, that that was a really big thing that was taught to me. We were, we were capable of interpreting the Bible ourselves. That is kind of like saying that if you read a medical book, you're qualified to take out somebody's appendix. And I'm not saying that people can't interpret the Bible for themselves. But when you think about the history of religion and the way that Don Cupid is presenting the history of religion, it really makes you think again about how firmly fixed our current understanding of the faith is. Because it's always been the tide and the shore, the sea and the shore, the sea and the shore. Going, going forward. Wait, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> if, we, if we are not entitled to, so I'm, I'm going to like try to push a little bit this further because I do think we're entitled to interpret scripture for ourselves and I think we're required to do it in community and that's how faith tradition started. If we as people in this room can't take a piece of scripture and interpret it for ourselves, is it, it, it takes us right back to the hierarchy of, but here's this usually man who can interpret it for you so that you get it right. Mm -hmm. So is there a both andness there? Well, m my quarrel with that uh -huh. is that uh, I would hope that the person who reads the Bible knows something about how it came into existence. Mm -hmm. So the you're speaking maybe for you're saying those who might take it literally. You're maybe thinking about that group of people. Right. That, that if, if we're taking it literally, then we've missed the point. Right. But there are people that don't take it literally who can read it more poetically, poetically and or with those fuzzy edges that I was talking about. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. so, 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 so we need a teacher, right? We need a teacher to say they're fuzzy edges, y'all. Don't, don't get too hard and fast. I remember one time you said to me, 
sometimes we have to think more about who we are than who we aren't. We're always trying to define it. Well, I'm not this. I'm not that. I'm not this. I don't believe in that. I think you're wrong. And, and sometimes we have to find out who we are in the space of all of this, right? What we do believe, not what we don't believe. Yeah. So I'll give you an example yeah, okay. of what I mean. I, I mentioned uh, when I did the talk on is life after death uh -huh. about having experience where a guy came up and confronted me yes. in class yeah. about that. I during the time that I was doing that material on biblical literacy. Um, and I said something about you can't take the Bible literally. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody who knows the history of the development of Scripture can't do that. And this guy came up. These are always guys. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, he came up and said, how can you say that? Because it says in Timothy, all Scripture is inspired by God. Uh-huh. That's an example of what I mean by misinterpretation. Yeah. Because when that verse of scripture was written there was no bible mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it can't be referring back to itself right. Right? right so if somebody says oh there's this verse in the, in the bible that says all scripture is divinely inspired by god and can be trusted then i can trust the bible that's not what that verse says mm -hmm. that's what i mean mm -hmm. and okay. so i think that if you're going to use the bible as a guide i my, I, I wish that more people were knowledgeable of the Bible. One of the things that I am so very grateful to my Southern Baptist heritage yeah. about is that we learned the Bible. And if there are any Southern Baptists in this room? <laughs> we, we Ever been to a sword drill? You know what a sword drill sword is? Sword drill. For those of you who do not know what a sword drill is, a sword drill is, and by the way, we had what's called the eight-point record system when we went to Sunday school. You checked off all these points to make sure you were going to go to heaven. And one of them was, did you bring your Bible to church? And we in junior high, late grammar school in junior high, the, the Sunday school teacher would put a line of kids up in the front of the class with the Bibles in their hands down here. These were our swords, the sword of the Lord. And we would add sword drills, and wow. somebody would give a burst of the Bible. And see how fast you could open it up? Exactly. <laughs> Psalm 118, <laughs> verse 7. Get ready. Draw swords. Did you hold the Bible just like this? So this is like rock, paper, scissors. Yeah. Well, no, you, had, you couldn't use your thumbs on the edges and cheat. Uh-huh. And uh, Psalm 118.17, charge. Wow. Draw swords, charge. And anybody who knows the Bible knows that Psalm 118 is right in the middle of the scripture. Uh -huh. So you open right to the middle, then that's where it is. John is like a little further this way. And, you know, so you, I wish people knew that. I wish people knew when Dr. Angston was given the history of the theology in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, a brilliant presentation, a great presentation. Mm -hmm. Everybody ought to know that stuff. Everybody sure. ought to know that yeah. stuff. So that, yeah, I That's think in that sense. I would, yeah. I, I, so we're, we're saying like, de-literalize it. Right. Yeah. Right. But there, and I just want to offer, probably most people in this room are at a point where, where they already can. 
And so, so, so I just want to be careful about this hierarchy of saying, you can't read the Bible and then think you can go to an appendectomy. <laughs> but because actually we can, and that's some of it is like we need to trust that we can mm -hmm. have a relationship to scripture that is poetic, mystical, non-literal, as Jim said last week, you know, and, and interpretive. And it is so helpful to do that in community mm -hmm. with guides mm -hmm. so that we all then become guides of our own becoming. Mm -hmm. right? the, the, the Bible is to me like a family photo album. Uh-huh. Really messed up one. Just saying. Right? And, yeah. and, and, Here's Cain who killed Abel. Yeah. And yeah. It was created by our ancestors mm -hmm. that meant so mm -hmm. much to them. And it's been handed down through generations and mm -hmm. all that. And so that when you, you look into the scripture, you see what our ancestors thought was important to be used as an informative, inspirational guide for living the faith. Right. So I think it's a really good time, and I know we're getting to the next couple things on your list, to read that poem, I Feel Sorry for Jesus. Well, can we do the rest of this? Yes. I just want, <laughs> all I want to say is that over time, the emphasis on the quadrilateral, yeah. quadrilateral has shifted. Mm -hmm. And then we went through a period of time where experience was the top thing mm -hmm. of the four. The four were still there, but they mattered. Experience would be back during the time when uh, Jonathan Edwards preached, for example. The Great Awakenings, um, the, the, the start of the Methodist movement in the Church of England. God strangely warmed my heart, said Wesley. When people had a great awakening, the personal experience, and there was uh, the, the, the big evangelical emphasis was on having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That was it. And every, you know, it puzzled me for a long time what that meant. But everybody does have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have the relationship that you have. That is your personal relationship, whatever it is. Whether it's one that um, you feel uh, encouraged and enthused and inspired by or one that you, you want to keep over here. Everybody's got that relationship. But we went through that. And then this is where Don Cupid is, mm -hmm. where reason out of the, the other three matter. But reason has now become the preeminent thing mm -hmm. about what do we think when we look at the evidence about what is true. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to get that out there. Yeah. Thanks for letting me interrupt you. <laughs> but there, and, and I love what um, in this work with Sea of Faith, one of the things that Cupid says that uh, was so wonderful about the immersion of psychoanalysis was that this is kind of the human struggle to kind of bring, first of all, together the conscious and the unconscious, but also the efforts to understand God, what we call God. And to understand the unconscious, to dive into the dark night, if you will, is bringing forth understandings of mystery or God. And um, Jung said, to, to even believe in God is kind of irrational. It's kind of unreasonable. So we're trying to find the, kind of connect with the mystery 
so that we understand this unreasonable aspect of self that continues to trust experience. So continues to, and, and I loved that, this kind of, it is unreasonable to try and understand God. So uh, anyway. before yeah. we get away with it, yeah. and this will be the end of it, I just yeah. want to remind you that you can go on YouTube yeah. and you can see, look, see a faith, search on YouTube, and you will see five yeah. documentary programs. I think it's six. That, huh? It's six. Six yeah. documentary programs that were done on the BBC. And so you can watch them free on YouTube. And if you have a hearing impairment problem like I do, they do have closed captions. Yeah. And closed captions are really, really, really quirky <laughs> because they didn't have the technology then. But what's amazing is, is that when Don Cupid wrote this book in England as a, a priest in the Church of England, get it? He's a church person. Uh, the BBC read it and thought it was worth making a documentary about. That wouldn't happen here now. That's not where we are in, in our culture uh, about that. But I encourage you to watch it. He's a, he's a, he's a brilliant man. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I don't want to take too much time, but I, I was so impressed with a reading of the book, and I hadn't talked to Michael Morewood in a long time, so I sent Michael uh, an email and said, oh, I've been thinking about you, missing you, you'll remember Michael Morewood, and, and um, I got an email back from him immediately, because it was morning time there, I wrote him at the end of the day, and Michael Morewood is my age, and he and Maria are on an 8,000 mile driving trip in the outback of Australia, camping that's amazing anyway he said yes i know don cupid he's a brilliant man and a very nice man and talked about the sea of faith communities that grew up in australia after the book came out yeah. so anyway yeah. that's just that watch it i think you'll find it interesting well this whole i think this whole purpose is to sort of say how can our traditions meet the time of reason how can our unreasonable meet the reasonable and sort of find the place where the two integrate. Um, I do want to read this poem because it's, it's so delightful and, and also funny. My, one of my favorite poets, Naomi Shihab Nye, has a poem called, I Feel Sorry for Jesus. And she writes, people won't leave him alone. I know he said wherever two or more are gathered in my name, but I'll bet some days he regrets it. <laughs> Cozily they tell you what he wants and doesn't want, as if they just got an email. Remember telephone, that pass it on game, where the message changed dramatically by the time it rounded the circle? Well, people blame terrible pieties on Jesus. They want to be his special pet. Jesus deserves better. I think he's been exhausted for a very long time. He went into the desert, friends. He didn't go into the pomp. He didn't go into the golden chandeliers and say, the truth tastes better here. See, I'm talking like I know. It's dangerous talking for Jesus. You get carried away almost immediately. I stood in the spot where he was born. I closed my eyes where he died and then didn't die. Every twist of the Via Dolorosa was written on my skin. And that makes me feel like being silent for him, you know? A secret pouch of listening. You won't hear me mention this again. That's great. That's really good. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
you have more and we have so much yeah. that we were going to yeah. do. We knew this would happen. <laughs> All right, so um, I thought that we would talk about um, kind of the three things yeah. that I wanted to be kind of guardrails yeah. as we go forward to talk about the growing, evolving understanding of God, self, and the path illuminated by the life and teachings of Jesus. And also, um, kind of your, our dialoguing about death and prayer and that yeah. sort of stuff. But I don't think we're going to have time. Yeah, to do we got that. three minutes. We'll make it all make sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Jim that gave us the first what seven chapters of Genesis, or was it eleven? Eleven in in forty five minutes. We can do it. Three minutes. Ready? Go. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I think what happens when Bill and I start talking is that we, um, yeah, we have all these words, and <laughs> maybe we need to be silent for a minute and just absorb that these four things through experience, through tradition, through our practices, we both know and don't know. You know, I, I don't, having a doctorate, having a, us sitting up here doesn't mean that anyone knows more or less. It's more like opening the doors to say like, here are the soft edges, come in, let's play around a little while. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons we build buildings with walls is because soft edges are challenging. We, we get uncomfortable when the windows are open too long or when the rain gets us wet or when we don't know where the entrance and exit is. But inside of that space, inside of the four walls, there's just so much to toy with, I think, to kind of get curious about, to go, what has shaped me? What is worth holding on to like a rope? And what is worth loosening like a baby bird? What can I soften? And I guess the older I get, and I imagine this is true for you because I think your theology has changed a ton in 98 years. <laughs> in my 27 years. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, this, I, I, I keep blurring the edges. I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's both unsettling and incredibly freeing. Mm -hmm. To go, I don't have to know. I don't have to talk for Jesus. I can just try to kind of live through this thing of becoming more human, which I, I'm going to say it, I think is what these teachings are all about. Becoming more human and softening our edges so that what we discover in that space is, is love. I think that uh, we're going to have to come back and maybe we can get some feedback from people on cards and things um, because we're going to continue some of this next week. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that the, a, a huge way that my theology has changed since teaching, starting teaches class mm -hmm. um, is that... Um, I, I began really um, wanting to connect psychology and spirituality and then 
um, and people have heard this before, after 9-11, I wanted to fight fundamentalism. And that took me in, a, in, in, in more of an intellectual thing mm -hmm. to understand the Jesus of history and to understand the Bible and the origins of stories in the Bible and all that sort of thing. And I, I keep saying that, that if somebody studies history, um, they won't come out with a belief that there's one way. Yeah. And if they study the history of the Bible, they won't take it literally. You know, those, I believe that. Mm -hmm. So I believe that it's, it's true. But a shift that I have made is getting real clarity about the fact that when Jesus started the movement that became Christianity or the Jesus movement, the people of the way, he didn't say, go make believers. Mm -hmm. That's not what he said. What he said was, go make disciples. And um, we've been that, and Holly and I talked about that this week, we've been that in our culture in times when there's been great crises. You remember how after Harvey, everybody came together and the differences kind of faded away and we worked to help people in need and to move in a direction to that. And, and I think without crying chicken little, we're in a crisis with several crises in our country right now. Christian nationalism is a crisis that's confronting our country. And it is a big deal. It's a danger not only the country, but it's a danger to Christianity. And, and um, so I have some passion about if, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, which I want to be, I want to do that with integrity and, and, and all of that. We also have a crisis when it comes to climate. Go outside and experience it. And um, you know that, that, that story that motivational speakers love, love to use about the pot, a frog in a pot of water, mm -hmm. that if you gradually warm it, it'll die? And I've wondered lately um, about climate deniers, uh, if those frogs are aware the water's getting hot. <laughs> anyway. Mm. So give us some feedback on the cards or through the email. And um, um, I'm glad that you got to experience Dr. Holly Hudley today. <laughs> no matter where you go, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next Sunday. <laughs>